Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, coming to you from virtual ASCO, not Chicago, but two rooms in Melbourne and Sydney. I'm Michael, and joining me as always is my co-conspirator Josh, who today is going by the name Bert on his little recording thing here. How are you doing, Josh slash Bert? I'm doing well. I will have to be far more subtle in the future when changing my name if you're going to keep telling everyone what I'm changing it to on our podcast. Then it won't be half as fun. For those of you who don't know what we're blithering on about on our recording software here, we each put our names down and Josh always comes up with something new and, well, what he would call funny. Um, Interesting. Interesting is another very charitable way of describing it. But anyway, let's get down to brass tacks because on this episode we are talking about gynecological cancer and Josh, it was quite a gyne heavy ASCO in terms of volume of material that was presented at the oral abstracts. Gyne heavy session it definitely was. It's good to see these challenging cancers really getting centre stage once again with potentially practice changing treatments which I'm lucky enough to talk to you about today. This was a late breaking abstract but it was the phase 3 Mirasol trial also going by GOG3045 forward slash ENGOTOV55. I can see why they preferred Mirasol. Summary of what Mirasol, the drug name is Mervetuximab Soratanzine which is an antibody drug conjugate much like trastuzumab druxtecan or trastuzumab entanzine versus and the investigator choice of chemotherapy in platinum resistant mind you that's resistant not refractory advanced high-grade epithelial ovarian primary peritoneal or fallopian tube cancers with high folate receptor alpha expression josh before you launch into your very information filled spiel could you just tell the audience the important distinction between platinum resistant and platinum refractory ovarian cancer platinum resistant is where you've relapsed within six months whereas platinum refractory means you've relapsed within three months the definition and the difference here is that if it's a three months and you've already had refractory disease it's going to be a really difficult cancer to treat that biology is nasty and when you're looking at developing a trial you don't want something where they're just going to progress on whatever you give them the background is there has been no randomized phase 3 trial data showing an overall survival benefit of a novel therapy in platinum resistant ovarian cancer what they found is that this antibody drug conjugate which consists of three components a antibody a payload or essentially a cytotoxic drug and a linker. And this is an alpha antibody, which can attach itself to the cancer cell, releasing a potent tubulin targeting agent, so chemotherapy, payload, warhead, whatever you want to call it. They've found that the FR or the folate receptor alpha is actually expressed in 90% of ovarian carcinomas, or as they said in the plenary session, ubiquitous. That's a big word, ubiquitous. Biggest word I'm going to use today, apart from the name. And 40% of platinum-resistant ovarian cancers exhibit this. The study design, it was an open-label phase 3. They were able to have three prior lines of therapy, prior bevacizumab and a PARP inhibitor were allowed, and they were doing BRCA testing. What they wanted is to have at least 75% expression of this FR-alpha, which is what has been associated with good response in earlier trials to this antibody drug conjugate. They were allowed to be platinum resistant, but not platinum refractory. And they were randomized one-to-one to either the 
ADC or the investigator choice chemotherapy, which included paclitaxel, topotecan, or pegylated liposomal doxorubicin. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and secondary endpoints was objective response rate, overall survival, and a safety analysis. Demographics were pretty well balanced. 60% had prior exposure to bevacizumab and 55% had prior exposure to a PARP inhibitor, which reflects the current landscape of ovarian cancer. And 46% of these patients had had three prior lines of therapy. So it was a heavily pre-treated population. The results showed the median progression-free survival was 3.98% months in the investigator choice chemotherapy. Not the drug that we're looking at, but the investigator choice. With MERV or the antibody drug conjugate, the progression-free survival was 5.62. That was a hazard ratio of 0.65 or 35% more effective in a refractory population of ovarian cancer patients. That's very, very impressive and shows a or offers a potential lifeline to people who are really losing the benefit of what is the core, the nuts and bolts, whatever other metaphor you want to use, of treatment of ovarian cancer, which is carboplatin. The matriarchs and patriarchs potentially is a good phrasing you could use. Sure, we'll go with that. (laughs) Okay. Another interesting thing is that when you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, a lot of the time with trials and chemotherapy, you see a massive drop-off with the first interim scan or you know that six week or two month mark where they'll do a scan they found with this particular drug that didn't happen whereas with the classical chemotherapy that did happen with the objective response rates objective response was 42 percent in mervituximab sort of tanzine versus the well done josh thank you you gave it your best shot (laughs) versus the investigator chemo of 16 percent. so that's that's huge complete response in five percent partial response in 37 percent and stable disease in 38%. So you saw 80% of patients who had some reduction in the size of the tumor versus 55% in the investigator choice of chemotherapy. Phenomenal. Overall survival, this was a pre-planned analysis with with 13.1 months of follow-up. Median overall survival for investigator choice was 12.75 months. And for MERV or the ADC, it was 16.46 months with a hazard ratio of 0.67. Again, a statistically significant result and a 33% reduction in the risk of death. The other things to talk about toxicities, ADCs have their inherent challenges, including off-target toxicities. They found that with the the MERV or the ADC, 42% were grade three, whereas it was 54% in the, the classical chemotherapy. So for once we find an intervention drug, which is less toxic than the standard of care chemotherapy. Moving forward, discontinuation was less in the ADC arm versus that of the chemotherapy arm, nine versus 16%. We saw less neutropenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and a similar amount of peripheral neuropathy to that of paclitaxel, but slightly less. There were similar rates of diarrhea, nausea, and stomatitis. The summary of this, though, is that this is a practice-changing drug. This is an ADC which has come to the fore and essentially shows that we now have another treatment option for resistant ovarian cancer, which we generally cycle through multiple drugs again and again and again, and half of these people have lost their bowel and maybe their spleen and part of their intestine because you continue to just chop away at parts 
as the cancer slowly progresses. So this is, I think, a whole one of the hallmark presentations to date at ASCO. And as you said, it's excellent that it is a um, Ghani Onk presentation because so often the presentations at ASCO and ESMO that really stick with people are the melanomas, the lung cancers, the colorectal cancers. And so for Ghani to get its moment in the sun uh, is obviously very encouraging. I can also bet what the next study will be, what the sequel will be to this, Josh. It will be Merv in the uh, in the first line setting. If it's if it's good, they'll want to push it, uh, see how far they could push it, I guess, and see if it can potentially supplant uh, carboplatin and paclitaxel. Not saying it will. That's a that's a big big thrown to usurp, but um, it wouldn't surprise me to see them try. Nor I. And if I was the person who was running these trials, I'd definitely be doing the same thing. It's it's good that uh, science is not predictable at all. <laughs> From one phase three trial to another, although I will spoil this right at the outset and say that this is much, much less practice changing because it is a negative study. But as multiple senior oncologists have told me, negative studies are just as important as positive studies. So Josh thought he had a uh, mouthful of treatment to try. Fortunately, mine does come with an acronym. So this is the OVAL study, a randomized controlled phase three trial of weekly paclitaxel plus or minus, and here I go, Ofranagene Obadenovic. How did I go, Josh? I still think I'm the better person at pronouncing things, but go on. Yeah, probably. I'm just going to call it VB111 because that's the acronym that they've used. Um, for, again, platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. As we like to do, the elevator pitch is that, as Josh has said, platinum-resistant ovarian cancer is incurable, clinically challenging with limited treatment options. You're basically limited to re-challenging with carboplatin, even though you know the likelihood of a response is small, or scrounging for things like calyx or liposomal doxorubicin. And so new agents are definitely required. What is VB111? It's a novel gene therapy with a dual mechanism that induces immune infiltration and attempts to disrupt the vascular component of of ovarian cancer. It has three components, an adenoviral vector, a proendothelin-1 and FAS-TNFR chimeric transgene, which are two separate uh, components. The idea is that it binds to TNF-alpha in the tumor microenvironment, leading to targeted apoptosis, tumor cell death, and necrosis, which causes tumor antigen release, which then propagates to a further anti-cancer response. The premise of OVAL is that a virus-mediated therapy can take advantage of the viral vector, the adenoviral vector, leading to T-cell infiltration and transforming a cold tumor into a hot tumor. We talked about that concept uh, in our CNS episode yesterday. That all sounds great. Let me show you how it didn't quite live up to the billing. The study design included patients who had had ovarian, advanced ovarian cancer that had progressed within 180 days from the last platinum-based therapy. They had to have measurable disease via resist, and patients could have had up to five prior anti-cancer regimens. As we said in a previous episode, Josh, I'm pretty sure some trials would have been thrown in there, but I can't think of five treatments of ovarian cancer, especially seeing as they were only allowed two prior lines 
benefits of platinum-based therapy? Don't really know. Maybe they were on some trials. That's generally when you get to five lines here. Yeah, absolutely. The exclusion criteria were primary refractory disease, so very similar inclusion and exclusion criteria to Josh's study, the Mirasol. And they also excluded clear cell carcinomas and low-grade tumors. So these were high-grade serous ovarian tumors only. Patients were randomized one-to-one to placebo and paclitaxel weekly, or the Ofrovac every eight weeks and paclitaxel Q1 weekly. Uh, 200 patients were recruited to each group. The dual primary endpoints were overall survival, progression-free survival, while the secondary endpoints were overall response rate by CA125, which is a interesting secondary endpoint, shall we say, and resist uh, overall response rate as well. Quality of life data was also looked at. In terms of the demographics, patients were well-balanced, the majority were Caucasian, and over 70% had epithelial ovarian subtypes, primary peritoneal disease in 12 and 13% respectively, and 10 and 13% of patients in both arms respectively had fallopian tube cancer. This is a little bit of a homogenous cohort, given that over 70% were down to one subtype of what we would call ovarian cancer or ovarian-like cancer. Given that we know that this spectrum of diseases is incredibly heterogeneous. In terms of disease characteristics, most patients had stage 3 disease and grades 3 to 4 histology. Most had excellent performance status, as one would expect. And prior, in terms of prior treatment lines, greater than 30% in both arms had 3 prior, and 10 and 11% respectively in both arms had 5 prior lines of therapy. Now, in terms of results and This is where, unfortunately, we have to play the wet blanket because the PFS primary endpoint was not met. The median progression-free survival was unchanged across both arms, so 5.2 versus 5.3 months, with a hazard ratio of 1.03. The overall survival was likewise not met at interim analysis, with a median overall survival of 13.37 months in the uh, investigation arm versus 13.14 months in the placebo arm with a hazard ratio of 0.97, neither of these results were statistically significant. There was also no difference in the overall response rate in either arm. In terms of the safety profile, it was well tolerated, with fevers and chills being more common in the vaccine arm. As we said when we talked about the UCP-VAX study for gliomas, that's not uncommon in these anti-cancer vaccine studies. The study unfortunately had to be terminated early, but it's good that they have gone and reported it, both to report their work, which is important work that is done, uh, but also to see that this is potentially not a path that we need to go down any further. This might be a bit of a dead end in terms of therapeutics. And obviously there is a pressing need for more research into this area. The Mirasol study has eased the burden by a whole one regimen, and we always need more. But things we can take away from this study is that the best result of PFS in the control arm for ovarian cancer was 5.36 months, which for paclitaxel alone in platinum refractory disease is probably better than many would be expecting. And I'm sure if you really drove down onto the um, onto the cohort, you might actually find an answer for that. And in terms of the CA125 response, there is a discordance between that and a resist score, which is an important clinical point to take away. We always say that with tumor markers, I sometimes uh, pejoratively say they're frequently not worth the paper or pixels they're printed on. But 
it is good to see that that is reinforced because you should not make clinical decisions based on tumor markers or CA125. You should always use it as a impetus for further imaging, further investigations, biopsies, and what have you. It will be exciting to see if these vaccines or this idea of teaching your immune system to attack the cancer cells eventually becomes mainstream. I know we have immunotherapy, but having vaccines that could just do that without regular infusions, toxicity, side effects would be a future I'd I'd like to see. Yeah, I was talking to people just today at work and basically saying, you know, even if you do need a vaccine every every week, I mean, that is so different from coming into day oncology and having a and having an infusion that lasts 3 hours. And so if we can sort of streamline the immunotherapy process and put it in vaccine form, I think that that is something that is very, very exciting and something that I hope will be uh, not too far away. Time toxicity is something we don't talk a lot about, but it's becoming more and more prevalent as people live longer and they realise that spending more and more time at a hospital or an infusion centre or stuck in a chair. Yeah, it is very much an aspect of the modern day oncology patient. But Josh, do you want to keep going and speak about the Duo-O trial? I will. So Duo-O is Devalumab, PD-O1 or PD-1 inhibitor with paclitaxel and carboplatin along with bevacizumab followed by maintenance Devalumab, bevacizumab and olaparib in patients with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer without BRCA mutations. This is the results from the randomized placebo-controlled phase 3 duo trial. It's a bit confusing, but the summary of why they want to do this is, apart from Malaprib and Bev, in the first-line advanced ovarian cancer, there's an unmet need in the non-BRCA mutation patient population, but I'd also argue there's an unmet need in the BRCA mutant population as well. There's just unmet needs in these these cancer subtypes. While there are immuno-oncology agents around, none of them have seen significant efficacy in the ovarian space. There was the phase two Mediola study, which combined Dervalumab and Bevacizumab to Olaparib, and this showed clinically promising activity in patients with non-germline BRCA mutations, platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. So this trial had three arms, which makes it a bit confusing. They had an initiation dose and then a maintenance dose. The initiation dose was chemotherapy, bevacizumab, and a devalumab placebo, followed by maintenance, bevacizumab, devalumab placebo, and laparib. That was arm A. Arm B was chemotherapy plus bevacizumab and devalumab, followed by bevacizumab, devalumab, and laparib placebo, so only one placebo in arm two. And then arm three, you got all the drugs. Well, one, one of them, you miss Derva and Olaparib. Another one, you miss, miss just Olaparib. And then one, you get everything. So the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, looking at ARM3 versus ARM1. And then the secondary endpoint was progression-free survival of ARM2 versus ARM1. A big omission here is that there wasn't an ARM2 versus ARM3. So what I want to see is, does Devalumab without Olaparib actually do anything? And they're not answering that question in this trial. It's the old Empower 150 problem where they actually didn't tell us up front what the benefit of adding bevacizumab to the Atezo plus chemo is when many suspected that Atezo by itself would have similar outcomes to the uh, 
quadruple therapy. They know how to run their trials. The patient criteria, only important things to note, no prior systemic therapy, not BRCA mutation. The, the patient characteristics were balanced throughout. Most had high-grade serous ovarian cancer. The trial, whilst looking at HRD, did not use this to define which arm patients were treated with. So they found HRD positivity was similar within each arms of treatment, about 38 to 40%, and HR negative was about 57 in each arm. The reason we talk about that is HRD positive tumors are very sensitive to a laparib because they've already got a, it's called homologous recombination deficiency. So they've already got damage to their DNA. The PARP inhibitor comes along, damages it more, and essentially the cell dies. Primary endpoint showed a hazard ratio of 0.49 of ARM1, showing a median progression-free survival of 23.1 months, versus ARM3 with a median progression-free survival of 37.3 months. So if you just give them bevacizumab and chemotherapy, it's a lot worse than giving Olaparib with the Valumab. The intention to treat was similar where you still had a strong hazard ratio of 0.63 of ARM3 versus ARM1. When you look at the sub-analysis of the HRD negative population, the PFS was 17.4 months in ARM1 and 20.9 months in ARM3 with a hazard ratio of 0.68, which is statistically significant. And if you compare ARM2 in the HRD population, it had a hazard ratio of 0.94, but it was not statistically significant. So ARM3 was significant, ARM2 not so much. Safety-wise, there were low levels of acute myeloid leukemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, and there were low levels across all arms. And discontinuation rates in ARM3, it was 35%. In ARM2, it was 26%. And in ARM1, it was 20%. In the maintenance phase only, we saw ARM3 maintenance 26% dropped off, ARM2 maintenance 17% and ARM1 was 13%. So ARM3, which was the combination of all of the drugs, definitely saw higher toxicities and higher dropouts in the patient population. So what conclusions can you take from what is somewhat a confusing trial? It met its primary endpoints of a planned progression-free survival in the combination of chemo, bevacizumab, devalumab, followed by maintenance treatment with olaparib. They found that non-BRCA mutated HRD positive was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.49 as expected given the olaparib and the non-BRCA mutation intention to treat was still statistically significant. The PFS overall included HRD negative disease and that was significant but again would need ongoing longer follow-up for this. It has brought light to what is the dark side of the moon, really, in the HRD negative space, which has for a long time suffered from a dearth of reasonable treatments. Interestingly, the HRD positive cohort was similar to the POLO study, P-A-O-L-O. And so the question with that is if it's similar to the positive study, is Devalumab actually doing anything in that cohort of patients? And that question has not been answered here. But after two negative immunotherapy trials, a positive trial is very reassuring. It is a chicken and the egg question, Josh, as you enunciated uh, very clearly. When you have a good treatment such as olaparib in HRD-positive ovarian cancer, you mentioned Paolo, there's also uh, Solo1, there is generally 
when you add something on top of that, it is difficult to know whether it's just the original treatment being good or whether the the additional treatment is contributing anything to it. And I think that hopefully we will see some extra analysis, maybe some planned um, retrospective analysis on this cohort where we can see exactly how much effect Dover is having. But as you say, a question that is not answered by this study just yet. Michael, I want to finish our voyage today talking about something that's a little more positive. The Keynote 826 Cervical Cancer Study. Absolutely. Um, Cervical cancer, as many of our listeners will know, is probably one of the greatest success stories in oncology, prevention, and probably modern or recent medicine writ large, it's, for my money, a greater success story than immunotherapy in that the uh, vaccine, Gardasil in Australia, against HPV has, in many places around the world, seen the rates of cervical cancer plummet. However, cervical cancer is and remains a major issue, particularly in areas where access to the HPV vaccine or uptake regarding education and attitudes towards vaccine is lower, which means there is always a role for treatment-related research. So the Keynote 826 trial is a study of pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy versus placebo in combination with chemotherapy for persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer. And these are These are the meaty results, Josh. These are the final overall survival results, the ones that we hold out for. A bit of background on cervical cancer or cervical cancer, depending on who you speak to and uh, how anatomically inclined they are. Platinum-based chemotherapy is the backbone for the treatment of persistent, recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer. And it is improved with the addition of bevacizumab. The current overall survival rate is about 17 and a half months. Pembrolizumab monotherapy is demonstrated to be efficacious in previously treated cancer with 14.3% overall response rate with patient in patients who have had greater than one previous line of chemotherapy and a disease recurrence that is PD-1 positive. This was in a phase 2 Keynote 158 trial. Keynote 826 is a randomized phase 3 double-blinded trial where really grabbing this bull by both horns, Josh. Patients were randomized one-to-one to pembrolizumab plus paclitaxel and either cis or carboplatin and bevacizumab, throwing the kitchen sink, or the same treatment with placebo instead of pembro. Pembro was continued for two years. Inclusion criteria are persistent recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer without the prospect of cure, obviously, when, it's, when a cervical cancer is locally advanced, there is the potential to have incredibly aggressive and quite morbid surgeries in the pursuit of a cure. So these are patients that have gone beyond that. Patients must be treatment naive. Patients were stratified according to uh, the degree of disease of diagnosis, so locally advanced or metastatic. The pdl one combined proportion score, so that's not TPS, that's CPS, which we have spoken about previously in the context of gastric and esophageal cancer, and uh, whether or not there was a plan to include bevacizumab. There were dual primary endpoints for Keynote A26, overall and progression-free survival. Secondary endpoints include overall response rate, duration of response, the 12-month progression-free survival rate, and safety. This study was first presented at ESMO in 2021 with a follow-up time of 22 months. 
the progression-free survival in the intervention arm was a measly 2.2 months, but still managed a hazard ratio of 0.62, which shows how how terrible the treatment outcomes can be in this patient population. However, the overall survival had not been reached, and we do know that immunotherapy studies frequently have a terrible numerical PFS, only to really hit their stride at around that two-month mark and really start to have some very good results. Patients were largely PD-L1 positive, 89% in fact. Only 11% of patients had a PD-L1 CPS of less than 1%. Approximately 37% of patients in both arms had a CPS of 1% to 10%, and the majority, over half in both arms, had a CPS of greater than 10 In terms of the endpoints, the protocol specified final overall survival, demonstrated positive findings across the board. And interestingly, the hazard ratios are generally fairly consistent across all uh, degrees of pdl one In the pdl one CPS greater than 1 population, the hazard ratio was 0.60, with a median overall survival of 28.6 months with PEMBRO versus 16.5 months with placebo. So you can see the magnitude of addition that the pembrolizumab is having there. In terms of all comers, the hazard ratio was 0.63. And in the patients who had a CPS of greater than 10, the hazard ratio was 0.58, with a median overall survival of 29.6 months versus 17.4 months. So you can see, despite what we might think a higher CPS does not necessarily confer a greater degree of benefit, which is good for applicability. In terms of subgroup analysis, there was a benefit whether or not the patient had bevacizumab or not, which might actually mean that pembrolizumab could replace bevacizumab. There was benefit in patients regardless of whether they had an ECOG performance status of zero or one. And although the majority of patients were under 65 and only a small number of patients were over, there was benefit across all age groups. The one area of this forest plot where the benefit does cross the line of equivalence is patients with metastatic disease. Relatively small numbers, about 100, between 1 and 200 versus over 400 in the other arms, um, which may explain why it crosses the uh, line of equivalence. However, it is important to note that we may expect a slightly lesser benefit in patients with metastatic disease. However, it is important to note that this is a forest plot, so you can't really make any um, treatment decisions based on that, and you're not going to withhold pembrolizumab just because a patient has metastatic cervical cancer. In terms of a progression-free survival in the CPS greater than one population, again, the hazard ratio is 0.58, and that PFS is starting to do that wonderful thing that immunotherapy does, which is plateau. At three years, patients have a threefold better chance to be free of disease progression or death with pembrolizumab than without. However, it is difficult to identify whether there is a benefit of PFS in the low PDL1 population due to low population numbers. And Michael, I don't actually think it's been approved for the PDL1 cohort of less than 1% because there, there's not there's no benefit or there's no evidence to support it. Yeah, so we're dealing with small numbers here um, and they didn't actually look obviously at the specific PD 
PDL1 less than 1. They only included an all-comer population, and you don't know how much of that overall benefit is being driven by the ones that do well. Again, we've said this before in other contexts, but it will be interesting to see if CPS scores become required. I mean, it looks like they are um, with the approvals that Pembrolizumab Mab has already got. But whether this becomes a, uh, a NEVO in gastric cancer, as an example, will be interesting to see. In terms of adverse events, the treatment-related adverse events were 65% in the placebo arm versus 69% in the PEMBRO arm. Discontinuation rates were low across both arms with only 2.9% in the PEMBRO arm versus one9 in the placebo. And there were less deaths in the pembrolizumab arm that were treatment-related. So as we know, we have a lot of experience with PEMBRO now. The addition of PEMBRO to an existing regimen doesn't seem to add that much toxicity. So to summarize this, as I bring us out from our gynecological sojourn here, Josh, Keynote 826 is a positive study, and it's that best kind of positive study that is wrapped up with a nice little bow. So it's an overall survival and a progression-free survival benefit in patients with a CPS score of greater than 1, greater than 10, and all comers. I guess it will remain to be seen exactly who gets access to pembrolizumab, but that's something that we can let other people sort out. The safety profile is manageable. There's no new safety signals. These are all drugs that we've been using for donkey's years now. And I guess the question is, can we use pembrolizumab and can we eliminate bevacizumab in the first-line treatment of cervical cancer, my answer to that question would be a resounding yes. It would be nice because bevacizumab has a host of its own toxicities that are not particularly fun to treat. Especially if you have been subjected to multiple surgeries and you're having issues with wound healing or wound breakdown. Bevacizumab obviously compounds all of those issues. So if we can, we've said this before, if we can reduce or de-escalate the amount of treatment we're giving to patients that is never a bad thing never is and tomorrow michael we'll breathe some fresh air into our next episode but we're going to be talking about lung cancer sounds great look forward to seeing you there bye thank you for listening to oncology for the inquisitive mind you'll find previous episodes on our website along with weekly posts resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.